Hello, I'm Kristen Marchand, and welcome back to The Local, a show like no other here on the Apiango line, in which our host, Sean Conway, does more than just interview an interesting guest about some historic place here in the Madawaska Valley. We're also a show where our live audience gets to add their two cents, stories, queries, comments, and memories, all in hopes of reminding the rest of us of our very unique local culture and heritage. We're in one such historic place again today, the old Barry's Bay train station, built in 1894. But we're going to be talking about a place near and dear to many of us, and not that far away. Some of you know it as Martin's Grove, others as the old baseball diamond. Still others know it as a schoolyard during the week that doubles as a parking lot on the weekend. Whatever you think it's called, the grounds at St. Hedwig's Roman Catholic Church in Barry's Bay are chock full of history. Built in 1914 and still going strong today, anybody who grew up in Barry's Bay over the past hundred years knows that St. Hedwig's Churchyard has a very unique story to tell. So with that in mind, let's turn it over to the local's host, Sean Conway. Thank you very much, Kristen. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to uh, another edition of uh, The Local. We're very privileged today to have a uh, proud native of the Barry's Bay Area, Joshua Blank, sitting to my immediate right, looking very grave and serious. Uh, um, these questions that are likely to come today, Josh, are going to be um, both stimulating and uh, very fair-minded, unlike what you might get at your high school class on <laughs> a Friday afternoon. Um, we're delighted to welcome uh, our, our special guest today. Um, many of you here will know uh, Joshua's parents, uh, at least one of whom is seated to my immediate left, Clifford Blank, um, whose wife, I gather, is out with your children on a skating mission down someplace in the Kashubi area, is that correct? Yeah, my, uh, my beautiful wife and uh, my mother are taking their two daughters out skating right now, I think, on, uh, on Wadsworth Lake, so they're having lots of fun. Well, hopefully I'll be able to give you lots of entertainment here today, too. Well, we want to get right to it, uh, Josh, but before we begin with the uh, specifics of today's uh, conversation, which is the Grand Polonia Picnic, launched a long time ago by one of Barry's Bay's most famous citizens, Father... Peter Bernaski. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you got interested, uh, not just in this topic, but in the general um, historical business, because I think I'd be right in saying you're not old enough to remember the last of these grand picnics. <laughs> yes, thank you, Sean, and uh, thank you, Barry, as well as station keepers, for inviting me here today. Um, and, and I have to say, with the, the public microphone feature at the end of this session, uh, I think it's a great addition, um, as oftentimes people need sometimes their memories primed a little bit before stories and memories and anecdotes come out. So if you do have any memories of these picnics, uh, attending them, or, uh, or, or some of the events in St. Hedwig's, I, I invite you to contribute, because this is how we preserve the past. It's not necessarily people writing things down. It's people contributing their memories. Memories last forever. So please do remember that. And if you have any anecdotes to contribute, please do at the end. Um, and before I begin talking a little bit about myself, um, I would also like to uh, respectfully acknowledge uh, that we're gathering here today on the ancestral, traditional, and unceded indigenous territory of the Algonquin peoples. Um, so, Sean, you wanted to know a little bit about myself and mentioned that I did grow up in Barry's Bay, Ontario. Um, as a youngster, I attended St. John Bosco Elementary School, 
and then Madawaska Valley District High School, where my grade nine physical edu education teacher was none other than Chris Marchand to my right. And uh, I did briefly attend St. Peter's High School in Peterborough while I was playing hockey, uh, but graduated from MVDHS, where I received the MPP Sean Conway bursary. So thank you very much for contributing to uh, the post-secondary futures of people in our community, Sean. So uh, Conflict of interest. We've got to stop this interview right now and ask Karen to come up and take it over. All right, thank you. So uh, after graduating from MVDHS, uh, I enrolled in a um, Bachelor of Arts Honors History program at the University of Ottawa. And I think growing up, especially among my Glovchesky ancestors, family history was always passed on to us. There were always tidbits of stories. There were recollections surrounding St. Hedwig's Parish, uh, with both of my grandparents being heavily involved in the church. And so I think from an early age, I was primed with a lot of these memories, and it was, it was, a lot of this was told to me. So I think it was a natural extension that I attend a history program in university. Uh, and then coming from a family of teachers, I, I enrolled in Teachers College, the Bachelor of Education program at the University of Ottawa, um, followed by uh, the, the, in some ways, the, the better school across the city at Carleton University for the Master's in History and the PhD in Canadian Studies program. Um, but currently I'm, I'm teaching history, law, and English at St. Francis Xavier Catholic High School in, uh, in Ottawa, it's just south of the airport. It's a large and burgeoning suburban school. So um, I think my path to history was, was naturally ingrained upon me when I was, when I was a youngster here. Um, and so when I started, as part of my master's degree, when I started looking into something original that we have to produce, I, I had talked to a bunch of people around the local area and many people mentioned these epic picnics that used to be held at St. Hedrick's Church. And I went to the local parish and unfortunately the pastor wasn't very forthcoming and interested in what I was doing. Um, so I checked the Barry's Bay Library next, which didn't have a lot and the Wilma Heritage Society had a little bit on the topic. Um, so I decided to start digging a little bit further and, and looking at microfilmed uh, newspapers from the Eganville Leader and Barry's Bay Review and talking to local people. And, and unfortunately, not a lot of people wanted to be put on record and, and quote specific things, but they would contribute memories, which enabled me to paint a picture for readers about what the picnics were like, um, in addition to a lot of the details provided by the Eganville Leader. Um, stories that were follow-up stories from the picnics and some of the large advertisements that Monsignor Bernaschi took out in the newspaper. And so those were crucial in establishing a lot of the details uh, for this story. But uh, in all honesty, some of the personal recollections of um, several local residents really enriched that article in itself. So, um, and as historians, what we look at is for something original. And nobody had written about this before, and it was the perfect opportunity to, to do so. And thankfully, it was accepted by uh, a journal, Historical Studies, uh, which is operated by the Canadian Catholic Historical Association. Uh, they were more than happy to publish it and, uh, and appeared in, in 2010, which astoundingly is 10 years ago already today, and so I had to record a few notes for myself up here uh, because the memory is a little bit foggy with uh, not getting enough sleep with two young children and uh, you know, having to teach uh, 80 students in, in high school these days, so uh, the memories uh, don't come as easily as they used to. But. All right, Josh, uh, that's a very helpful opening. Uh, for people that uh, don't know the physical geography of this area, could you just explain to somebody who might be listening um, to, uh, to a podcast of this uh, of this show, the physical geography of what what is uh, the um, picnic ground at uh, what we locals know as St. Hedwig's Church. Describe that to somebody who has never seen it. 
So the the former village of Berries Bay, now in the amalgamated township of the Madawaska Valley, is located on a plain between uh, several large hills. And at the north end of Kamenuskeg Lake is where St. Hedwig's Church is located. And there is a north-south road that runs, it's Dunn Street, uh, and then it makes a sharp corner at St. Hedwig's Parish, which is at the north end of Kamenuskeg Lake, uh, sharp turn left and becomes Siberia Road. The church itself was built on a flat plain as well, um, overlooking Kamenuskeg Lake. And there's quite a prominent view from the grounds of the church and the parking lot of the church uh, over the lake. There is a large cliff that extends downwards to where the public dock is. Um, and this view offers some spectacular sunsets um, and beautiful colors. Uh, depending on which direction you look down the lake at certain times of the year. So uh, it's a really prominent location for a church. And early on, the founder of the parish, the, the first priest, um, it is said, bought the land next to the church to set up a baseball diamond. And rumor has it that planners originally wanted to extend Dunn Street south to where the causeway to Max, Mask Island is, um, but because Monsignor Bernavsky, then Father Bernavsky, um, bought the property and locals put up such a fuss that their baseball field will be in jeopardy that Dunn Street was rerouted um, westward to Siberia Road and causeway, the causeway now is accessed via, via a road um, to the west of the parish property. Yes, and if you know the area, if you are driving, um, I guess it would be southward on Dunn Street as you get closer to the, the lake, as they would say in the golf business, the road takes a sharp dog leg to the right and out to uh, the local version of Siberia. But you've done a really good job of that uh, um, physical layout. So imagine that we're descending from a balloon or something from the, the above. What, would I, what, what might we have seen that day in August of 1912 at the first of these monster picnics. Describe what it would have looked like as best you understand it based on your research. Because the church, rather, it's 1912. Church doesn't officially launch until 1915, I think it is. Mm -hmm. They're building it through 1914, 1915. So you've got this tableland looking over the beautiful Bay Area with the Martin's Grove. What, what would have been there? Uh, your article talks about a shanty-styled, I take it, tents, because they must have had to feed people outside. What would it have looked like, that first picnic in 1912? Uh, well, as you mentioned, there was no church, and so it was an open field beside the baseball field. And um, from recollections of several people, makeshift tables were made by bringing sawhorses to the property, and then long sawn boards were placed between these sawhorses, and they acted as not only preparation tables, but meal tables for individuals who would attend the picnic. And so beforehand, you would have had people preparing the meals. And there is one resident who mentioned that there was one tent early on that a lot of the cooking happened underneath uh, where the steam wouldn't obviously catch the tent aflame. Um, but for some of the dishes that were offered, they had to be baked several days in advance. Um, and then brought to the actual site the day of the picnic. But the, the first picnic in 1912, there was an orchestra that came from Renfrew for the occasion, and there was a, at least one set of bleachers that was constructed for the event, and there's an iconic photo where the Renfrew Orchestra is sitting on these bleachers, as well as what is presumably their wives, 
um, or their sisters or their mothers very uh, very well dressed um, and posing for this for this photo so not only was the picnic just an eating event but it was an entertainment um, it was entertainment for locals and of course it featured a baseball game later in the afternoon so the wonderful title of your article in the uh, historical journal is pitching pies and piety so I take it from the, those three um, categories that Father Bernaski's picnic had three functions. To raise money, to help pay for this new church he was building, um, to feed people and provide a social um, get-together. You talk about the commensal function. I might like you to talk a little bit about that if you have a moment. And then, of course, what I think became perhaps one of the really significant legacies, which were these lively, if not fierce, baseball competitions that uh, feature prominently in all the adver- uh, ads for the picnic. So talk briefly about each of those three functions and how, if at all, they melded together. Sure. Um, and like Sean mentioned, too, when I, when I was trying to plot out a title, and the title is usually the last thing that comes to mind. You know, you, you research the piece, you put it together, and then you have to come up with this catchy title. And, and one of my high school English teachers said I, I, was, I was horrible with alliterations. And so my, my goal was to create a good alliteration for this title. And I thought, well, what, what can I come up with? And then I think I woke up in the middle of the night at about 1.30 in the morning and quickly scratched down a few words on a pad. And the next morning it made sense. It was pitching pies and piety. And, and uh, so, yeah, the, the, the event was, was like a threefold event. Um, they brought together a sport, uh, which is where the word pitching comes from, uh, with a commensal nourishment and meal for the physical being, pies, and nourishment for the soul, piety. And um, early on in the settlement of this area, there were several ethnic divisions. And, you know, you had groups of Poles, you had groups of Irish people, you had groups of Germans. And there was rivalry between these groups. And one of the things that Monsignor Bernaski was known for, and numerous residents of this area mentioned this to me, he was inclusive. He didn't care what group you were from. You were invited to the event. It was a gathering. We were gathering all together here. Um, Monsignor himself was known as an inclusive person. And some of the politicians that he invited um, from around Renfrew County weren't necessarily Catholic. And uh, he was also known to loan chairs for events to the Anglican Church of the Epiphany, which was just down the street on Dunn Street. And in his invitations that he sent out with canvassers in the community, he, on the front page of his picnic notebooks, he said the invitation was open to all. And so these picnics were not only meant to bring the parish community together, which was mainly comprised of Polish Kashubs and a few Irish families, uh, but the entire region. The, he promoted the mingling of people and the getting together for an event to have fun and have some leisure separate from their tough life on farms or on working on the railway or roads and lumber camps in the area. Um, the picnics originally started also as a fundraiser for the church. And they were anxiously awaited social events, too. Lots of labor and supplies were donated by parishioners. Uh, but, of course, they don't volunteer if they don't believe in the one that's guiding the project. And uh, it's notable, too, that St. Havocs was built during wartime as well. 
Um, so this in itself posed several difficulties when it comes to obtaining material as well as getting money out of families too. And oftentimes parishioners donated to the picnic itself, which I'll get to in a minute, but also the building of the parish. They donated timbers. So the families of John Rakuski and John Atmansky donated timbers for the building of the church. And the basin was dug out by hand and horses pulling scrapers. And it is said that the church pillars as well were harvested on the interior. They were harvested from the farm of John Mintha Sr. Um, but Monsignor Bernaschi was known not only as the parish priest, but as an athlete and a promoter as well. And talk to anyone who remembers a little bit about him, and he seems to be a mythic figure. Um, there are recollections of him, and it's actually printed in, in one book. I, I can't remember offhand if it was Father Legree's book or not, but that he would go out to the lumber camps to visit people and hear confessions, and he would often throw over his shoulder other alien priests um, just on his trek out to these lumber camps. And so you have this idea of this strong, athletic, promoter, parish priest. Just on that, because there are several people uh, in the audience today, I, I'm one of them, who have a very vivid memory of the late departed uh, Monsignor Bernaschi. Uh, for people who are here and, like you, don't remember him because he died in December 1958, which is a long time ago. Um, what, uh, how would you describe him to a, a group of your students who are trying to understand this picnic and the motive force behind it? Uh, do you want to just uh, give us your sense of... Uh, I saw you were handing back Shirley Mask Connolly's uh, profile of uh, Monsignor Bernaschi, which I reread for purposes of today's interview. And, uh, you're right, he was a very good athlete and he looked the part. He also looked like someone with whom he would not want to trifle at a public event. Uh, but any more that you want to say about him, just what kind of uh, person he was, what his view of, you've given us a good sense of his you know, inclusiveness, his, he seems like a very natural leadership kind of guy. Um, anything else that you would say about him? Well, I think the fact that he was born locally is an important part to this because it wasn't just a priest that was coming from somewhere who happened to speak Polish. Because he was from the area, I think he gained respect of the local population and was able to maybe rally them perhaps more so than other priests would have been able to. And, and he was born near here in, in 1888. And when he was 11 years old or thereabouts, he was sent to a Polish seminary in Michigan. And while he was there, he, he was known to frequent the baseball diamond, and this is really where he became uh, exposed to baseball. And then upon coming back, when he was ordained in 1910, he had played along with other locals who had picked up the game of baseball from uh, railway workers, and really saw an opportunity, I think, uh, to create an event that was not only a parish event, but a, a leisure activity. And... and he was originally an assistant at uh, St. Mary's in Wilno to Monsignor Jankowski. And Monsignor Jankowski was known as somebody who clamped down on a lot of the lengthy Polish weddings, which sometimes would last as long as a week. And that's not 
including the actual <laughs> wedding mass itself. The, uh, the, the pre-drinking and the post-drinking would carry on for numerous days. And so Monsignor Yankowski really reformed a lot of the, the backwoods drinking practices in the Wilno area. And I think Monsignor Bernaski really learned from that. So when he was um, asked to create a parish here in Barry's Bay for the burgeoning community, he looked at the, the concept of baseball as something that would bring people together because it's not really specifically an ethnic game. It's not Irish. It's not Polish. It's not German. If anything, it's more British. And I think he saw this event as something that could bring people together. And it wouldn't necessarily promote strife between the ethnic groups, but would create a sense of community. He himself was a was a quite the baseball uh, player. It, he was known as a an ace pitcher, and he could hit the ball a mile too. And there's there's several newspaper articles which mention Peter's Pine somewhere on the property of St. Hedwig's. Um, it was apparently near the edge of the cliff, and when Monsignor Bernaski would come up to bat, he could hit Peter's Pine, and apparently nobody else could. And so the fact that he was an athlete, he was a parish priest, he was the organizer of these events, he would stay nearby to ensure these events were proper and did not get out of hand. Um, he was the real neutralizer in all this. And people respected him. They also feared him because he would publicly chastise people uh, if they, in fact, broke the rules of the day. Now, these picnics were also alcohol-free because of his time with Monsignor Jankowski. He learned that, okay, we need to have an... Uh, a family event, a communal event, a parish event that did not involve alcohol. However, it's not to say that some was snuck in in the woods or, you know, in containers by those attending. However, it was destined to be a alcohol-free event for families, not only from nearby, but afar as well. Well, just on that, uh, the um, Eganville Leader ad from August 1912 um, tells us that the first picnic like many of its following picnics, was midweek. It was a Wednesday, which today would seem like a recipe for disaster. Um, late August, um, what, what might suggest the choice of Wednesday as a, as a um, time for the picnic? I think looking at who he was and the values that he had, um, by holding the picnic during the week, it meant that you couldn't show up to work drunk the next day. Well, you could, but... Um, only to a certain extent. And so by having this picnic uh, in this main event in the middle of the week, it ensured that consumption was not the main event. Holding it on a Friday or a Saturday where there might be a day to recuperate before you had to slog it through the week again uh, might have been a recipe for disaster. So I think the fact that they were held oftentimes during the week was, again, to curb this need to consume and to keep the focus on what the event should be. In these early years, um, there would be three basic ways to get to this picnic. Many people would have walked. People, some people from an intermediate distance might have come in with horse and buggy. But hundreds of people came by train. Uh, you write in this article about these excursion trains from across eastern Ontario. Tell our audience a little bit about how that all worked. And this also adds to the, the sense that Monsignor Bernaski was a promoter because it wasn't just targeting, these picnics weren't just targeting residents from 
western Renfrew County. They were targeting residents from all across Renfrew County and sometimes as far away as Toronto and Ottawa. And on this line of thinking, he organized special trains for the picnics with the Ottawa Armprior Perry Sound Railway, later Grand Trunk Railway, and they would leave Armprior in the morning and stop along stations along the way, as well as Golden Lake, to pick up passengers from a nearby line that, that brought them from Pembroke, and they would deliver them here in Barry's Bay. Then the train would leave here in the evening at 6.30 at night and drop off the picnickers all the way back to Armprior during the evening. Um, there was one picnic where he organized trains and there weren't enough. And so at the last second, um, some of the people in the railway had to scramble and it turns out nine uh, cars on a train came and dropped off picnickers here for that day. So the fact that it wasn't just one, uh, but nine speaks to the amount of people that traveled to our small community here from all across Renfrew County to attend these picnics. In wartime, the trains were not available because they were needed for military matters. However, people still traveled on the regular train, which apparently was quite packed, and there were people standing and holding on just so they don't fall as a jostling uh, happened along the tracks, uh, just to attend the picnic here. So despite the fact that trains could not be rented during wartime, people still attended. That didn't stop them. They looked for their leisurely day in Barry's Bay. Now, if I got on the train in Arnprior at 7 o'clock in the morning uh, and was expected to be back home in bed by midnight and at work the next morning, what would I, what's the, the bill of fare at the monster picnic up there on the shores of Lake Kamenesky? What There'd be food, but what else would, would I get for my 25 cents admission, I think was the price I saw in one of the early uh, advertisements. Yeah, there were quite a few features that Monsignor would organize for these picnics, and, and he was quite the promoter, and they offered variety. It wasn't necessarily the same event year after year after year. Different features were offered in different years to provide some variety. The 1912 picnic, um, Monsignor wrote in the ad that keen and scientific contests for the honors of the diamond are promised. Professional W.M. Murray will execute startling feats on the slack wire. Over the years, there were tug-of-war competitions. Orchestras came to play. There were Polish dances held, of course, in addition to the regularly scheduled baseball games. And at some picnics, Caledonian games and games of chance were held to entertain the public. There were also booths set up with certain games. And I believe, Mr. Conway, you fancied yourself uh, with one particular booth and one particular game when you were a young boy and decided to place your school, or your paper route pay on the line. Can you perhaps tell us about that? In this question period, sir, you get to answer the question. <laughs> I get to ask them. Uh, we'll talk about that perhaps when we get into the question, uh, question period. Um, but so there was a lot there. There was, there was sporting competitions. You mentioned, for example, wartime. Those of us who remember um, baseball down by the spire of St. Hedwig's Church in peacetime, when on many occasions you needed a United Nations peace force to keep Douglas and Barry's Bay from doing something really nasty to one another. I can't... Was there any, any evidence in the uh, files that you looked at whether 
Father Bernaski's considerable physical prowess was required to keep the peace when Whitney met Killaloo or Cormac met uh, Eganville? A lot of the picnic stories mentioned, and these are stories in the Eganville Leader, and given that the Eganville Leader was also a, a paper that promoted uh, temperance, if not prohibition, um, and no consumption of alcohol, they were, there were glowing reports from the picnic itself, and they always stated, or they frequently stated, that order was kept because Monsignor was looking after and presiding over events. And again, hearkening back to what I had mentioned earlier, I think because people respected him, he was athletic and knew the game, and they had a fear of God themselves, uh, whether they were Catholic or Anglican or Lutheran, I think uh, cooler heads prevailed, and there were no mentions of any severe dust-ups, brouhaha's, or Donnybrooks at at these events. Now, mind you, uh, maybe some rivalries were carried over into other competitions outside the picnic, but at least from what the newspaper said, order was was kept throughout these these picnics. And there would be big crowds. I mean, some of those press reports from the early and middle years of the picnic, which are really about 1912 to 1965, I think, roughly is what we're looking at here. There were thousands of people who showed up. So how do they feed people? I mean, this is, uh, in many cases, uh, an age before electricity. So you've got people that have to be fed, and I suspect came expecting to be fed well, and I'm sure were fed well. Um, How do they do all that? How do they just manage the logistics of feeding and watering thousands of people while at the same time keeping some kind of a legal gambling parlor going uh, and, uh, you know, the the slack wire exhibition of uh, Professor William Murray um, and uh, other activities. Uh, Let's go to the food part because uh, that, uh, you make mention in your article about uh, Paul Coolis, who is Father Mervyn Coolis' father, a legendary cook uh, who apparently uh, masterminded the uh, sand-baked beans. Sand-baked beans for a couple of thousand people? In Wilno, maybe in 2010, that's one thing. But to do that uh, on the pre-electricity shores of Lake Kamenskeg in 1915, now that is not a minor feat. How did they? How did they manage all that? Well, there's a lot of sand, and if anybody's been to the grounds and seen that research, there's a heck of a lot of sand on the property. So take the little bit of grass off the surface, and you got a lot of sand to bake. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, you're right. These these events were attended by thousands of people, and and let me just toss out a few numbers here to to quantify to those listening uh, here today in Barry's Bay and those listening uh, around the world to uh, to the size of this event. So they usually raise thousands of dollars for the parish. And, and what does that mean, though? Because the concept of money over the years has changed drastically. Well, in 1914, the parish picnic raised $2,100, which is the equivalent in today's money of $47,000 at one parish picnic. Uh, in the Roaring Twenties, profits soared to over $3,000 at these events. And so, you know given inflation, approximately double that earlier figure. Um, Admission into the 30s, to the parish grounds itself, was 25 cents per person. Meals were 50 cents per adult. But during the 30s, during the dirty 30s and the Depression, they were cut in half so that people could still afford to eat and attend the event. The the event was um, reflective of the needs of the community as well. It just didn't have money-making in mind. Um, But food and supplies were needed for these picnics, and canvassers went out well in advance. Um, Early on in some of the early picnic years, 
canvassers such as Marriott Mansky, Mrs. Peter Romleski, Elizabeth Shala, and Mrs. John McCuskey were known to carry out this in the early years. And they would carry notebooks and canvas around the town and they would go out to as many rural farms as they could get to and see if anybody could contribute something to the parish picnic. And whether they were parishioners or residents of the area, a lot of people readily contributed to the picnic event. Um, they donated what they could and names in these notebooks from the picnics uh, range from those of Polish Kashub background to Irish, English, French, and African-Canadian ancestry as well. Last names such as Kerwin, Soiki, Saussier, Kilby, Stafford, and Ash uh, were but a few of the names in these donation booklets. And sometimes a family could donate 50 cents. Sometimes they could donate a dollar for the event. Sometimes it was a bag of potatoes. Sometimes it was 10 loaves of bread. And these donations all contributed to the meals that would be served. And so while there were a few standard items offered, the donations of locals also contributed to the variety over the years. And this food, it wasn't just food. Um, it was raised. It was baked by their own hands. And their, their contribution for such an event was a way that they could contribute to not only their parish, but their community. It was a point of pride. They invested their hard work into this. If they couldn't offer money, they could offer what little product they could produce. Nowadays, we renovate a house ourselves, we call it sweat equity. Well, they put sweat equity into these items for the picnic. Um, and as Sean, you mentioned, days in advance, meal prep was done on certain dishes. Um, in the early years, there were shanty-style meals that were undertaken by Thomas Dota and Thomas Bonna. And the sand-baked beans were a mainstay. There is one uh, parishioner that mentioned that several people within their homes would make sand-baked beans and then bring them to the event that day because there was not enough space uh, on the parish grounds to make all of this. But, uh, as you mentioned, Paul Coolis, the father of Father Mervyn Coolis, as well as others from the community would volunteer three days in advance to start making the sand-baked beans in the ground uh, behind St. Hedrick's Church. And um, I have a receipt here with me from Stafford's store that Father Bernatsky went to pick up supplies a few days beforehand. And some of the ingredients that locals couldn't contribute that were still needed for the event were purchased locally. And I'll just read a couple of items here from this receipt of August 1918. Um, and it just goes to show how large the event was. Um, there were 10 huge bags of beans, 25 bags of raisins. Um, there were four large packages of currants. There were 50 packages of raisins, 12 yards of toweling, three large containers of lemon zest, three large containers of vanilla, 10 bags of flour, one large barrel of jam one large barrel of baking powder. Enough jam wasn't had. Another large pail of jam and 10 more bags of flour. It was paid in full by Monsignor Bernatsky and by looking at the amounts here, I'm sure Frank Stafford gave a discount for the event. And he also would often contribute money uh, for the event as well. Um, in 1919, 
Um, I don't have the actual receipts, but I do have the figures in Monsignor's notebook. Uh, items were brought up, Prince's, C.D. Murray's, as well, the cook and the helper purchased items that were needed on their own, which they were, of course, reimbursed for, so they were not entirely out of pocket. They donated their time and effort, but Monsignor, recognizing the extra ingredients that had to be bought just before the event to make it happen, would make sure to reimburse them for that. So, one gets a very clear impression of the sweat equity, the flour, the lemon, the raisins, there's a lot at play here for what is essentially an open air, um, no protection against the elements event at which big profits are hopefully expected to very good community cause. How did they deal with the nightmare that everybody who's ever been associated with a summer wedding, a summer anything that's outdoors, namely inconvenient, badly timed rain? Um, your article touches on... Uh, strategies to deal with rain but other than prayer and good luck uh, did anything else work you know again this this contributes to this mythic representation of monsignor bernatsky and and so many people that i talked to that did remember the picnics never remembered one that was rained out and looking at the archives in the Eganville leader year after year after year it was said that they had excellent weather in some years the articles mentioned that the clouds were looming in the morning However, there was always mass in the morning at St. Hedwig's. And so it was believed that Monsignor had some special connection to the one above. And by the end of morning mass, the clouds had dissipated and the event went on without rain. And it wasn't until really the 1960s when newspaper accounts of these events mentioned that rain dampened the spirits of the day. Um, and other factors came into play too by the 1960s and the, the decline of these events. But uh, again, it was it was seen that Monsignor had this connection and and that this event would not be rained out because of the devout parishioners, but also some some connection to the one above. Now, you um, you talked a bit about baseball, and and certainly baseball was a big part of this, and some fierce competitions. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit, because you did in your article about um, the, the nature of those times, particularly around the First World War, those early years of the picnic. Um, and a lot of people here, of course, would remember when Sunday anything, Sunday sports, Sunday movies, uh, were simply not allowed. Monsignor Bernaschi seemed to have sufficient clout, um, even when those prohibitions applied elsewhere in Ontario, to manage a, a local option. Um, but what was the, um, baseball was acceptable, uh, you say in your article, because it represented the kind of, quote, manly virtue that was acceptable as leisure at a time when um, a lot of people in authority, particularly church and religious authority, thought that if it was sport, it was the devil's handmaid. Yeah, indeed. In this era, the 1910s leading into the 1920s, you, you saw an increased portion of the population in urban areas working in factories and the men going home at the end of the day and stopping off at the tavern for a drink after their hard uh, their hard day's work and one turned into two turned into three turned into more and before you knew it the the paycheck and the savings of the family was thrown away and not only that but the after effects of, of consuming would be felt at home too and so a lot of moral reformers around Canada and the United States in this era thought that a new 
man needed to emerge and it needed to be at the grassroots level. So whether you had uh, preachers in Western Canada, in Winnipeg, you had people like J.S. Woodsworth looking at how to reform the population, there was a sense that things needed to change. And baseball in itself was known as a proper game when played properly. And it celebrated this British sense of fair play. Even if you were beaten, you would accept that and not lash out. And the point with this, this baseball game as a morally proper activity was not to deprive men of the avenues in which they could exert their strength, but rather to harness it and to harness it for the greater good. What better way than to show your strength and be humble about it at a parish picnic rather than how many drinks you could slam at the tavern. And as a non-contact sport, it, it attempted to fill this role. And so physical contact was supposed to be very minimal. Of course, you have players running on the base paths and the only time in which they might collide would be at the base. But it was thought that the umpire in charge uh, would, would hold court and, and discipline those um, who would not respect the no physicality rules of the game. And in many instances uh, at the parish picnics, these instances wouldn't happen because Monsignor was, was there. Um, and so a couple of people said that Monsignor Bernaschi gave the community not only a sacred space in which to pray, but also a safe place in which to play. All right, with that, uh, and that's very helpful, one of the other interesting things about the article, Pitching Pies and Piety, is that um, not only did men apparently more or less behave themselves playing baseball at the picnic and at Father Bernaschi's uh, sandlot there by, by the church. But by the mid-1930s, women uh, were engaged in softball. You talk about something called the uh, White Eagles. Tell our audience who they were, uh, where that whole movement came from, and is it really true that Father Bernaschi's women's softball team competed in the Orange Orangeman's picnic at Maynooth in 1936? In, indeed it is. And again, it speaks to his reputation and inclusiveness that others would invite such a team and such a person from, from a community to an event like that. And in the early 20th century, if, if we look back and, and try and gain a glimpse of what the life was like for a female... Um, they were consigned to really domestic duties, even within the parish as well. And this was, of course, due to uh, prevailing, the prevailing attitude across the nation and several narrow-minded and pseudoscientific reasons. Um, but this also extended to leisure activities as well. If you look at the photo from the 1912 parish picnic, the females who were present on the bleachers were properly dressed. The men, yes, had suits, but the women were supposed to be proper and they were supposed to be spectators. They were not to be taking in the events by participating in them. Um, but uh, by the 1930s, Monsignor Bernaschi, helped, with, helped by um, Father Micah, later become Monsignor Micah, um, they created a women's softball team in the parish. And this was in response to a group of females who approached them and said, we want to play too. And instead of turning them aside and buying into these pseudoscientific reasons why women should not play in sports, they embraced it and they promoted it. And I, I had a few discussions with a certain parish priest who didn't quite believe this, but the record backs it up. And 
They mainly played exhibition games in the beginning at St. Hedwig's against other teams made up of female players. Um, but then they started to attend picnics to play against other communities as well. And as Sean mentioned, they played in the Orangeman's Picnic in Maynooth, and they traveled to Renfrew, Killu, Bancroft, and they were also hosted in 1939 a mini softball tournament at the parish, uh, and it was comprised of female teams from all across the province. Um, the highly touted team that year was St. Mary's from Toronto. And while this wasn't the first time a mini softball tournament for females was held, uh, it, it was one of the first in eastern Ontario. Softball for women was established in the 1920s in Toronto. And the rules were quite similar to baseball that was played by men, with the exception of the base paths were shorter in length, as well as the pitcher's mound uh, from the plate. Um, members of this inaugural team included people like Catherine Vikuski, Monica Kulis, Ursula Micah, Rita Beanish, Christina Kulis, Elner Micah, Tessie Dombrowski, Doreen Vitkuski, Teresita Chipier, Pat Sabolski, Josephine Micah, Rita Sabolski, and my grandmother, Rita Sh Azita Shala. And on a personal note, years ago when I was interviewing my grandmother about um, her involvement in St. Hedwig's, long before I had uh, attended university and started uh, researching this, um, she mentioned about these these softball tournaments and games and so I pressed her further on a couple of things and and she mentioned that uh, again that a group of women approached the, the two priests and they willingly took this task on uh, but also that it was good fun it was always proper fun they had many laughs and formed many friendships things never got out of hand they loved playing baseball and they were very happy and very glad that they got the opportunity to do so and it also, I'll finish with this, it, it seems ironic that the Barry's Bay Review, a newspaper in town, uh, commended these women, but they remarked about their, their marvelous sportsmanship. <laughs> Josh, a couple of uh, additional questions. One, we've talked about the pies and we've talked about the baseball and I'm very nervous and reluctant to introduce another feature that uh, starts right at the beginning in 1912 uh, that ad that you referred to for the first picnic talks about um, the politicians showing up specifically in 1912 Dr. Maloney a legendary country doctor who later became the um, federal member of parliament Tom Lowe uh, also from Renfrew uh, but throughout most of those years, 1912 till the mid-1960s, um, I suppose for the obvious reasons that where thousands of people gather under a summer sun, um, the politicians are going to be attracted to that, like, you know... Um, Flies to like, something. Well, I won't... No, I didn't want to go there. Um, <laughs> like a good politician, but, you didn't want to go there, But it there, was right? a show. I mean, it was clearly a big part of the... Well, it was part of the, the, the show. There was a bandstand, and uh, I've heard those stories over the years. What do you know about uh, the, um, the political theater that attended many of these picnics, particularly in the early years and decades of uh, St. Hedwig's Monster Picnic? Now, there was, a qu there was quite the cohort uh, that were continually invited year after year, and, and Monsignor would send out the invites. He, he wasn't afraid, and, and he realized that this is a venue to reach the people. And, and I think, too, you have the opportunity to ask these leaders a question. They can't escape. 
They can't run away. That train leaves at 6.30 at night, so they ain't getting away earlier. The highway didn't exist until the post-war era. So they were there, and they had to answer questions, and they had to hear people's opinions. Um, and early on, there, the, like Sean mentioned, the cohort of Dr. Maloney, um, uh, Thomas Lowe, uh, Dr. Connolly, and Thomas Murray, who was a parishioner himself, dominated the agenda and over the years others were invited to speak at the picnics and not only did they debate the topics at hand in the upcoming election but things like conscription and the delivery of electricity to rural areas um, and so it was a wide variety of politicians that came over the years and Mitchell Hepburn even happened to attend a few picnics in the 30s um, as well as senators and other high uh, officials in the public service. And in 1962, although the parish picnic was cancelled for several reasons, um, the Liberal leader at the time, Lester B. Pearson, selected St. Hedwig's to come and visit because it had been such a hub of activity in the years prior. And he also inaugurated the baseball season by catching a few uh, baseballs thrown at him from several individuals and cracking a few hits from the batter's box and uh, I believe um, Sean you have a few memories of that uh, event as well as you were around again questions from questioners answers from guests uh, let's uh, we'll come back to that uh, in questions if you would like to go there but our final question before we get the audience into this um, it was a great run 50 some years but it appears from your article Josh that uh, Father or Monsignor Bernaski dies in December 1958, and the picnic, for a variety of reasons, doesn't really much outlive him. It's, I think, by the mid-60s, uh, for a variety of reasons, the, the great monster picnic, the Grand Polonia picnic, as it was first uh, advertised in the Eganville Leader of 1912, uh, ceases to exist. Uh, what were the factors that uh, put paid to one of the great social, religious, and athletic events in Madawaska Valley lore. Yeah, there were numerous reasons, Sean, and, and some were at the micro level and some were at the macro level. Um, Monsignor Micah, who by then was uh, running St. Hedwig's, an, an avid ball player himself, might I add, and, and, and a fan who coached local teams, uh, baseball and hockey, and was often known to move mass times earlier to catch the evening baseball game, Major League Baseball, or then NHL game in the wintertime. Um, he had mentioned to several people off the record, and who didn't want to be quoted on this, but that the parish didn't need the money anymore. Over the years, these picnics had raised enough funds, things were paid off, the parish didn't need the money anymore. But there's more to it than just that. It was a huge event to organize, and it had gone on for years. And unfortunately, all good things come to an end. Um, locals also had uh, fundraised money years previously for a new hospital. That was another one of Monsignor Bernaski's dreams, uh, was St. Francis Memorial Hospital. And so a lot of effort had gone into that. And an arena was uh, in, in town. And that venue became a venue where events were held as well, traveling events and, and other events not associated with the church that became uh, entertainment events too. So um, there was a decentralization of, of leisure from the parish at this time. and. And it wasn't just St. Hedwig's either. It's, it's an era where the decentralization of leisure from churches happened, I think, all around Canada. The, the parish priest 
played less of a multiple person role in the community and, and of course there are obvious exceptions but I think from that era they started to more focus on the faith rather than the community and, and leisure things on the side as well. Um, so multiple reasons why, including some inclement weather as well. Uh, so multiple factors contributed to, to this event um, declining over, over the 1960s. Thank you very much, Josh. I think, Chris, we're at what we call question time. We are. And we have a microphone here that we can pass down to you, or you may want to come up here. But please remember, before you ask your question, offer up a comment, or recount a story or memory, please give us your name and where you hail from, even if it's only a hen's race down the road. Maybe we should start at the front here, because I believe there are two unanswered questions <laughs> from um, Mr. Conway, too, so we can't let him off the hook. Three strikes and you're out, as they say well, in baseball. I, uh, well, I will tell it very quickly, uh, going with my cousin Larry Reynolds, as we did as kids, um, I might have been eight or nine. Father Bernaski, I think, was still alive, so it would be 1958, with a handful of change going to uh, gamble. And uh, it was the best educational experience I ever had for which I didn't have to pay, really. I went with 25 cents at one point uh, under my cousin's good guidance. My 25 cents went to about 750 or some outrageous <laughs> sum of money and I thought to myself I'm going to run this up to 10 bucks and I will be like one of the pharaohs of ancient Egypt I will be <laughs> flush with money and I'm not telling anybody at home about my new status and then my 750 became 625 became 510 became 2 became nothing and a very powerful lesson was never was was registered and not soon forgotten. So Monsignor Bernaski would be happy with that. Uh, he got the money, and I got the lesson. <laughs> <laughs> the other one I will just quickly comment on is that my grandfather, who was uh, uh, very close to Monsignor Bernaski, primarily because of baseball, I was surprised actually that Monsignor Bernaski, when I checked the record, was born in 1888. So when he died in 19 58. He was only 70. Those of us who have a memory of him, I would have guessed he was substantially older than that, but he was a, a phenomenal athlete. When you look at the pictures, you can see it. Josh mentioned it, that famous picture. Many of you have seen the, the Ottawa Valley Baseball Championship team of 1910. Monsignor is in that. My grandfather's in it as well. But at any rate, uh, and then my grandfather ended up, I think partly because of politics, uh, because of baseball, he got into politics, but he brought one of the more notorious people ever to be Premier of Ontario, a guy named Mitchell Frederick Hepburn, to a picnic here in 19... Well, it was more than one. And all I remember is my late mother saying that uh, my grandmother didn't invite him back. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently he enjoyed the scenery around town. Uh, well, he, particularly if it was in liquid form. And he was uh, a long way from the farm in St. Thomas, Ontario. So there, I've answered the question, sort of. <laughs> Thank you for breaking the ice. Then other people who have memories. Bob Corrigan, Barry Spade. Uh, I went to the church suppers in the 1950s. And it almost sounded like Josh was there, the way he described everything that I saw. And I remember that there was a big grandstand off to the right of the ball field, and there were crown and anchor games. And what I liked was Father Mac, who was 
at St. Lawrence O'Toole's church, he loved baseball, so he had a prominent seat right behind the catcher, behind the screen, of course, and he would give us five cents for every foul ball that we would get and bring back. So I really liked that an awful lot. Oh, I have one sad feeling about that, because being such a young kid, I had no interest in the church suppers. I didn't go to a single church supper there, and now I love church suppers so much, and every so often I regret that I never went to these wonderful meals that people talk about now. So it was a lot of fun. You might have gambled that money from the foul balls like Sean did, I don't know. <laughs> or more likely, if you were a young person, you could be quickly and easily conscripted into a day's work. Uh, that too. Hello, my name is Don Kosnaski, and uh, I am a grandnephew of Monsignor Bernaski, and his sister was my grandmother. And uh, the farm that we grew up on, uh, we harvested ice in the wintertime from the lake to provide for various, can't take a with for example, and, and places like that. Uh, but uh, come picnic time, which is very important to my grandmother, uh, she would gather all the troops, all her daughters and all us grandchildren, and performing various, but the one I remember most was uh, my younger cousin and myself, we were just little boys, five years old maybe, and six years old, going to the ice house and rooting out enough ice and cleaning it, and wrapping it in newspaper and putting it on the back of a pickup truck to take up to the picnic for, uh, for the refreshments, to keep the refreshments cool. And a very good memory of mine. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Karen Yakubowski, and uh, just uh, probably one of, one of the few people in the room, too, that will remember the old picnics. And uh, I remember as young children, uh, my parents would dress us up beautifully. We had white pleated skirts, our beautiful boleros on. We'd be off to the picnic. We'd get parasols at the picnic. There were balloons and uh, windmills and... Then as I got older, uh, we got a little freedom at the picnic and you could run around in the pines and play and those wonderful smells of the pines and the food cooking and those sand baked beans were just totally amazing. Uh, the other thing is um, at, at the picnics, as uh, Bobby said, you had crown and anchor and the paddles and some of those games that we always thought only the Legion men play. <laughs> but, uh, uh, the uh, refreshments, the ice cream, the, all of those wonderful things. Like as a child, it was such a celebratory time. And banners of white and red and blue. And it was a true, true, true event. <laughs> Thank you for those memories. And actually, as, as others have been mentioning Crown and Anchor, um, you know, even though I had never attended any of the parish picnics in St. Hedwig's, I was fortunate as a young lad to, to go to a lot of the Whitney suppers. And I distinctly remember the Crown and Anchor games where I had lost many a quarter at. And so when I was putting together these articles, I, I thought to myself, I'm like, well, think of the Whitney supper, but, you know, times 20 for size. Hi. I was only five years old, I think, when I had my first memory of the picnic. And it was very important to me because it was 
my birthday celebration. The picnic was close enough that my parents could con me into thinking it was my birthday party. <laughs> We'd always have a few cents. My brother was little, he was in a stroller. But there is a famous photo, which I can't find anymore, of me looking rather sullen, but I did have a prize, and my brother looking ecstatic, and all he had was a button. <laughs> Mine was a bird on a stick, along with Francis Ann remembers that one too. It whistled. So you'd hold it up and you'd spin it on the end of a string and it would whistle. It would last about 20 minutes. And that would be the end of the birthday present and it was a lovely memory. And we need your name too. My name is Beverly Flynn Glopcheski. My mother was Dolores Bernanski and Monsignor was my great uncle. He was a generous man. The bracelets I'm wearing are a, a souvenir. Every time Monsignor left town, he would buy a present for my grandmother and another one for my mother. They would never be identical, but they'd be similar. So I have two similar memories. Thank you. Peter Glovchaski from Barry's Bay. Uh, my memories of the picnics have been well spoken of, those Tweety birds especially. Um, but just to tell you something about the stature of, uh, and how Monsignor Bernanski was regarded. I was baptized uh, January 25th, 1953. What's my first name? Peter. Two other boys were baptized that day. Sylvester Peter Broughton and Patrick Peter Edmansky. <laughs> Anyone else uh, on, the, on Father Bernanski, who, who I'm telling you was a force of nature. I mean, I, again, I was surprised that he was as young as he was when he died. I, didn't realize that he was only 70. And I think in failing health the last few years, as I, as I recall. So Donald, or anybody here who, uh, because I'm, my, my impression is and was that he was really a dynamo in this place. I mean, he looked the part uh, physically. I mean, he, he, not all the clergy persons were big into sports, I can tell you. Uh, in this era, Monsignor Bernaschi, Later, Monsignor Micah were two really good athletes. Father McNamara, who, to whom Bob made reference, uh, was also, I think, in his day, a good athlete. He lost both his legs as a result of, uh, I think, gangrene when he was in his mid-adult years. So I just remember Father McNamara uh, with, with no lower extremities. But these people were really fanatical when it came to the subject of sports, and particularly for the reasons Josh gave about... Uh, about um, baseball, but my memories of Monsignor Bernaschi were, he was a really interesting guy, and I heard enough stories from my grandfather to reinforce all of that. Donald? I'm sorry, Sean, I was only five when he passed, so I really don't remember him very well. I heard lots of stories from him, of course, and, uh, family stories being passed down by my grandmother and my mom and that, but no, I didn't have it. What, one of the other. All I remember is uh, walking to school in the morning. Uh, we lived not far away from St. Joseph School, and uh, he had a bedroom up on the second floor of the priest's house, and you could see him in the window just watching all the kids going to school. That that's what he liked to do, just watch the activity that was happening down on the street. And that was Bob Corgan with that recollection. Yeah, and one of the things that Josh, and maybe Josh, you can comment on this, that uh, in addition to the picnic, and in addition to sports, 
uh, he ran a movie theater in the basement of St. Hedwig's Church at a time, by the way, when if you belong to a certain religious affiliation in this town, uh, you were only allowed to go to movies that, you know, were acceptable. And uh, I don't know whether, uh, I suspect um, Monsignor Bernaski was his own censor board, but, but he did. And he ran movies on, on Sundays, I think, at a time when lots of places in the province of Ontario that was not permitted. You needed a, I think there was a municipal plebiscite required to allow you to have Sunday sports and, and Sunday movies, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. But what, what, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, Monsignor Bernaschi and the, and the movies? Yeah, so in, indeed, again, because people believed that um, he, could, he could control situations and he could maintain proper decorum, um, a plebiscite was held and it was, um, he was allowed to show movies on Sundays. And one of the first communities really in Ontario, like you mentioned, Sean, and uh, again, this was another leisure activity for the parish. And when I was doing research years ago for the St. Hedwig's Parish book, um, I unearthed a few references to him showing these movies and holding draws and giving out free treats to the children in attendance to these movies. And it was also a modernizing factor to bring this technology into a rural area and give residents a sense of what was popular with movies. Of course, the movies themselves would most likely be screened by Monsignor beforehand, um, but there were often draws held at these movies too for prizes, um, and when you paid your admission, you gained um, a ballot into, into the draw. And uh, his, his draws even were featured in a box office magazine, too, uh, talking about entertainment in Ontario years ago. Um, and many, many people fondly remember attending these movies, too. And there often would be, my grandmother had a hall pass for St. Hedwig's, and it would enable her to go and see some of these movies and, and events for free. So if you rewarded for good behavior, you got a hall pass to St. Hedwig's for these, as well as dramatic productions, which Monsignor Bernaschi put on as well. This was another outlet and another leisure activity with uh, that he gave the community, and, and he, he ran the St. Hedwig's Dramatic Club, which produced plays in the early years, and I can remember looking over the, the, the cast of some of these plays, and I saw both my, my grandmother, Zita Shala, and my grandfather, Bronis Klovczewski, oftentimes in the same play together, so I often wonder if that's one of the places where they, where they in fact met. <laughs> And also on the, on the topic of uh, reminiscence about Monsignor Bernaschi, um, he's not in the audience today, but I was having a phone conversation the other day with Ziggy Bernaschi, and Ziggy was telling me, he can remember distinctly, that Monsignor would return to the family farm, and he never forgot where his roots were. He would often come home and was more than happy to bale hay. He would throw it 12 feet up into the hay loft, and Ziggy said he, he was a muscular man, which, again, wasn't necessarily the case for all priests at the time, and, and he had no problems, you know, doing the grunt work, doing the, doing the, dir the dirty work at the farm, too. He liked it. It was, a, it was a leisurely activity. It was returning to his roots. And Ziggy also remembered that every time he, he came by, he would play catch with me, as he said, and he said, I, I remember that, and that was important. I, he, I, I loved to play catch with him. Any other, mem any other memories of our picnic? Just on a humorous note, uh, something that I don't like to admit, maybe, uh, a friend of mine and I uh, had the uh, very 
honorable distinction of uh, burning the adjacent hill down on the last picnic. <laughs> oh, so is this why they ended, Donnie? <laughs> so they have to stop the ball game and come fight fire. <laughs> Peter Glovcheski again. Um, I'm the president of the Willow Heritage Society. In 2014, we had uh, a special celebration at the park in Willow and the special exhibits to commemorate the 100th anniversary of St. Hedrick's Church and to celebrate Monsignor Bernaski. And our historical director at that, uh, who is still presently, our historical director, Shirley Mass Connolly, created a book, a little booklet about Monsignor Bernaski. And Fittingly, it is titled, A Giant Among Us. To, with, that's the respect that he had held in building the community. Uh, there's some neat pictures in it. And there's one that Sean talked about, the baseball team from 1910 is in it. And also, there's a nice picture from 1910 of my grandmother's wedding. There was two cars in Barry's Bay at that time. Monsignor Bernaski had one, and I think Mr. Drohan had the other one. And... Uh, my grandmother got taken to church in the, one of the two cars for her marriage. So we, we were quite proud to do this in remembrance of Monsignor. One other thing of, that wasn't mentioned too much about Monsignor today was how much he liked to fish and hunt. The man was an out, outdoorsman too. He, uh, the catching the fish, the catching the, of the, of the uh, deer in the fall, and also what he did for other people, too, with Ski Island, which was almost the little resort of the area, of that era. And my parents spoke so fondly of it, going down there and, this, and, the, and the, the events that he would put on for youth, all to enjoy together. Peter, explain what Ski Island was and where it was. Down um, just as you, four miles? As you head straight down the lake, of course, it runs up and down here. Uh, and you, you, just before the narrows start to spread out into the big lake at Cumbermere, Donald says it's about four miles, it was a small island right in the channel of the lake. And it, Monsignor Bernaski owned that island. And he built quite a sizable structure on that. And he would, by boat, he would take youth from Barry's Bay, from the landing, from the dock, all the way down the lake, and they would spend maybe the weekend or a Sunday afternoon or a Saturday afternoon on Ski Island and uh, just enjoying each other's company and picnicking. There's a photo, uh, Peter, that I remember of uh, my grandfather, your father, Bronis Klovcheski, uh, standing in front of the structure on Ski Island and there was, a, there was a sign that also called it Rest Inn and he was holding up um, a sizable catch of, I believe, about four or five fish from that day's adventure with, with several other people too. Um, and it, Monsignor was known to dress up for youth events at the parish too, not only dress up as Santa Claus, but sometimes an, an unknown who would come and, and distribute and donate candy and, and different treats to the children of the parish too. Hi, my name is Marie Tate. I used to be a Hearn here before, um, many years ago. And uh, my recollection of uh, Monsignor Bernatsky would be probably Bobby would remember a little bit about it uh, when we were kids in school, the big blocks school there next to the church. The, the, and so we were ushered into the church for confession time. And uh, of 
course, Monsignor Bernatsky was there at the railing. Remember the long railing they had? And uh, so he'd be sitting there, and we'd be shaking in our seats <laughs> because he was a little bit grumpy then, and he had he was hard of hearing as well. So anyway, um, yeah, I, I remember shaking, and you would rehearse your confession so vividly and so much, and you'd make up sins because you had to you had to say something. So you'd make up all these sins, and then by the time your turn was to come up like you were just a basket case but I remember getting up there and kneeling in front of him and thinking oh I've got everything down pat went through the whole confession thing with him and at the end of it waiting then for the penance and he looks at me and he said I didn't hear a darn word you said repeat I have to do the whole thing all over again. So that was my recollection of uh, Monsignor Bernatsky. Yeah. Chris, before Marie leaves, I just want to second that motion. I, I actually didn't want to go there. I don't know, Karen, whether you have any memory of this, but that is my most vivid and terrifying memory of Monsignor Bernatsky. And I wasn't very old, and my memory, and I may be wrong, I don't think I am, is that first Friday we would be all trooped over there, and there'd be one long line. I think there were two confessionals, and Monsignor was in one, and I think Father Micah was in the other. And you would be praying to God that the line would break. So, because I have memories of Basil Billings and Larry Reynolds and my friends coming out, and Monsignor, as Marie says, was, was getting deaf. So, sometimes in English, sometimes in Polish, there would be a loud, discernible, what? You did what? <laughs> and then the sinner would walk out into the... Oh, so, Marie, I completely support what you've said. So you get an idea of where this fear over the years came from. You know, you respected the person, but you also had the fear of God, too. <laughs> Another memory I, I kind of remember quite a bit, but a lot of it I've lost, and that was waiting on the tables... Uh, at one of their dinners at the picnic and I was I must have been a fairly young teenager now whether I was even a teenager I don't know but I remember being asked and I don't know why I was asked maybe it was because they, they needed help or I, I really don't know and I had no idea about waiting on tables and I remember again fretting like heck oh my god what do you do anyway I survived but it was at one of their picnics and that would have been going back to Hmm, 1950, uh, late 50s maybe, you know, in, in that area. Yeah, maybe in, in late 50s. Uh, so I don't remember Monsignor Bernatsky being there, uh, so I, I don't know, but, but I remember waiting on those tables. Yeah, what an experience. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Chris, as we wrap up, I just want to say to the audience, um, if you haven't seen, heard, or read it, I would recommend, because we've had a wonderful guest here today. He has, um, unlike a lot of people I know, actually written an excellent 350-page book called Creating Kashubia, uh, History, Memory, and Identity in Canada's First Polish Community, which is here, published by McGill Queen's Press, 2016, available, I believe, in the library, um, as his article, Pitching Pies and Piety, uh, two really good um, articles about local history, and I want to thank him very much for being here today. 
Thank you very much, Sean, and thank you very much, Barry, for extending the invite to me originally. I was more than happy to do this, and uh, I look forward to listening to more of your podcasts, as well as the Station Keepers podcast. So thank you very much for putting this together. I think it's an excellent venue, and uh, congratulations on a, on a job well done with this new, new venture. And I would like to thank our audience today for those questions, comments, memories, and the stories. They're greatly appreciated, and I know they will be very helpful in the years to come in making sense for future generations as to why we are who we are up here in the Madawaska Valley. And for those of you who would like your friends and family to hear this show again, tell them it will be available later this evening and the la as the latest episode of the Apiango Line. You can ask your kids to get the podcast if you want. <laughs> or why not do yourself a favor and take one of our helpful pamphlets home with you. It will show you, all by your lonesome, how to download the Apiango line to your cell phone or tablet by signing up for a free subscription. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Today's show was sponsored by the Station Keepers, a nonprofit organization that keeps this old train station hopping for a good part of the year. Our show was produced by Barry Conway. I'm Kristen Marshand, and for our host, Sean Conway, and our guest, Joshua Blank, we'd like to wish you a good day and many happy memories to come. Goodbye, and God bless. <laughs>